This podcast is designed for the purpose of entertainment and information and is not meant to be considered medical advice. What? It's not? No. Are you sure? Yeah, our lawyer said we can't do that anymore. Aww. I'm not in somebody's heart. I'm not their spiritual advisor. I'm not omniscient. I have no idea. Uh, what then I do why know are is... you here? We demand <laughs> yeah. omniscience from all our guests. And think, and think of how of much money you could make if you were RFK Jr.'s spiritual advisor right now. Oh, God, I know. Can you imagine? Um, but, you know, that's a, that is a big job, and I don't think I'm up to it, certainly. <laughs> about medicine like a booster shot for your ears the guy you just heard is dr christopher labos and the other guy is jonathan jerry i'm a doctor but he's not sorry that i did biomedical research instead jeez and we're gonna look at the evidence behind medical topics and the show is wait called... wait wait no i, I want to say it i want to say it I wanna... no no i want to say it I'm i want to say it. i want to say it. i came up with it it's the body of body of evidence it's the body of evidence you totally stole that from madonna We are joined by Anna Merlin, a senior reporter with Motherboard, which is the technology desk at Vice News, and the author of Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power. Anna, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Welcome, welcome. We, uh, we wanted to get you on the show because you've been reporting on the anti-vaccine movement uh, quite extensively during the pandemic. You also have a chapter in your book about the origins of the anti-vaccine movement and its resurgence following the publication of Andrew Wakefield's uh, fraudulent paper in the late 90s. And I, I want you to help us paint a portrait of what the movement looks like today. As, right. as we see, you know, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., one of its most influential figures, run for the presidency of the United States. So we, we know that for as long as there have been vaccines, there has been opposition to them. But who would you say were the main figures of influence in the anti-vax movement in the early aughts post-Wakefield versus who they are now post-COVID? Right. So I think that in some ways, some of the figures have stayed the same. You know, the people you'll see speaking, for instance, at anti-vaccine conferences tend to be the same people year after year. You know, if you check out the speaker list at someplace like Autism One, which is the biggest sort of anti-vaccine conference in the country. Um, but at the same time, especially post-COVID, the anti-vaccine world has gotten bigger. It's gotten more diffuse. There are more people cashing in. Um, and I use that phrase deliberately. You know, these are people who have made a lot of money uh, either, you know, trying to become kind of self-styled media personalities, selling um, their version of medical consultations, because, of course, none of these folks who hold themselves out to be physicians um, take insurance. Uh, and, you know, in a variety of other ways. Yeah, that's um, that's one sort of commonality is that none of them, none of them take insurance, which I'm sure is uh, is coincidental, right? So um, some of the big players today are Del Bigtree, who might be familiar to a lot of your listeners. He was a producer on a show called The Doctors um, and then made Vaxxed with Andrew Wakefield. Um, you know, there are also people who promote specifically ivermectin as a, you know, disputed and unproven treatment for COVID. And then the course of doing that uh, suggests that vaccines are unsafe. Um, those include people like Pierre Corey, who I'm sure you've heard a lot about. And then there are folks who are kind of straddling both the anti-vaccine world and sort of the new age, what is sometimes 
termed like the conspirituality world. So people like David Avocado Wolf, who's like a huge kind of new age influencer who also has become a big player in the health freedom and sort of vaccine suspicion world. So the anti-vaccine world right now is really big. It's really diffuse. There are tons of players. There are tons of people competing for attention to the point where occasionally I will write about like feuds in the anti-vaccine world, which was not something that you could usually do for a long time. You know, these huge points of disagreement and furious accusations of um, betrayal and double dealing and being a secret agent, which is happening more and more now. Yeah, I was going to ask you. So, I mean, anti-vaxxers in general have been very good at building these coalitions and supporting each other. You see them on, on, on each other's shows or they're all interviewing each other. But it can backfire. And so mm. you've seen examples of this kind of internecine fighting. Do you have any any examples to give us? Yeah. So a really good one, um, a very fun and very silly one, was about um, snake venom. So some people might remember that last year a far-right podcaster named Stu Peters uh, produced this movie called Watch the Water, mm-hmm. which basically made the case that both COVID and COVID vaccines were derived from snake venom and that king cobra venom was being pumped into the water to sicken humanity and imbue us with sort of satanic anti-human DNA and somehow COVID and COVID vaccines were also involved, right? Yeah. Um, Stu Peters then went on to make Died Suddenly this year, which is another sort of viral anti-vaccine documentary. I'm sorry, that came out in December. Um, it's been a been a long and year. since then yeah. he's made Final Days, which is even more yes. satanic in its in its presentation. Yeah, exactly. And so what has happened specifically with Stu Peters documentaries is that they tend to be controversial in the anti-vaccine world. With some people saying, you know, this is so poorly researched and it's filled with so many logical fallacies that clearly it's meant to make us look bad. Mm-hmm. You know, so you'll see people like Larry <laughs> Cook. Yeah, so Larry Cook, who's a big player in the anti-vaccine world, he used to have a huge anti-vaccine Facebook group. Um, you know, other folks like David Icke, who's a very old school sort of conspiracist, you'll see them kind of coming out against uh, films like Died Suddenly and other Stu Peters properties and saying, you know, this David Icke, is... really? Who believes in reptilian yeah. shape-shifting aliens having take, taken over the world? He thinks that yeah. Stu Peters is going too far? <laughs> he shared a post on, yeah, he shared a post on Telegram written by another kind of lesser known conspiracist kind of anti-vaccine figure, basically suggesting that Died Suddenly specifically um, was you know, was, yeah, designed to make the movement look bad, um, was, you know, meant to kind of subtly implant in readers' minds that these this movement must be very silly. Uh, so it's been really interesting to watch, and I'm actually writing about it um, happening again, interestingly, in another form of the corner of the conspiracy verse. There's just, uh, there's so much competition now that if these guys want to get attention, they, they kind of have to pick fights with one another. <laughs> I would like to ask both of you if you've ever heard of Hanlon's Razor. No. Yes, Yes. but I can't remember what it means. Uh, And I always have to look up the exact quote, but it's like, never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. So I'm kind of surprised (laughs) they haven't, that they're, they're, they're thinking that their conspiracy theory has well, that, an embedded conspiracy well, within it, or I don't mm. know. But, but 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 that's the thing is that mm. they they do the, the exact reverse, which is mm. that it's never for them. It's never about incompetence. It's always by design. It's always a conspiracy. It's always sinister. Mm. Uh, right. It, it's 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 never incompetent. They, like they haven't learned that lesson that no people, uh, you know, 
people all over the world can be very incompetent in the jobs that they do. And that often is all you need to explain some of the things that we see. Right. I think that believing in malice over incompetence in a way is sort of reassuring, right? Yeah. You know, it, it tends to ascribe an order to the universe that is maybe a little bit easier to understand. Yeah, I suppose it's I suppose it's hard for people to accept the fact that sometimes bad things happen to good people for no reason. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard for me to accept. I understand that. <laughs> uh, you were mentioning Stu Peters and, and all of these quote unquote documentaries. Uh, and obviously we, we see a lot of denunciation of the quote unquote mainstream media by anti-vaxxers, which sure. is a lot easier to do now in an era where the means of audiovisual production have been made much more accessible. It used to it used to be that all anti-vaxxers had were books to sell and events to organize. What does their media ecosystem look like now and how does it compare to their mainstream equivalents? Oh, it's so much bigger now. I mean, obviously, you know, you have alternative platforms like Gab, Telegram, Rumble that kind of um, sprang up in, you know, opposition to the quote unquote mainstream media and as a way for people to get their message out more easily. Now, also, we have Twitter under Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. They really changed their rules of moderation. A lot of people who had been previously kicked off that platform for promoting COVID or, you know, elections, conspiracy theories, things like that are, are back on that platform and using it. So they have a much bigger field to play on now. And part of that means that they can also uh, sell stuff more easily. It's not just books. It's not just conferences. You can also sell, you know, webinars. I've seen people occasionally selling access to things like private Telegram groups or even private Twitter accounts where you get more direct kind of one-on-one attention. There are just more kind of streams of income for these folks to make use of. Have you have you ever watched Dell Big Tree's The High Wire? Yeah, I sure have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very sorry, but hey, I watched 14 hours of, of RFK Jr.'s CHD TV, so I, I, sure. I, I understand what it's like to be in the trenches. But how how would you describe his production values? Um, well, they're very good. I mean, I've seen Mr. Big Tree speak in person several times. Um, more most recently, I think in like February at a New Age conference called Conscious Life. Um, and yeah, I've watched The Highwire quite a bit. You know, he was a TV producer on a mainstream show mm-hmm. on The Doctors. He is very uh, polished. The production values are, I would say, pretty high for an online show. He's very well spoken. He kind of knows what to do in terms of making big gestures, speaking in short statements, you know, being just very kind of clear and direct and keeping things very, very simple. Um, you know, it it works. Like, I understand why it looks good to people. So, so we have these media personalities, um, but were you surprised to see actual physicians and biomedical researchers suddenly opposing the COVID vaccines and kind of getting caught in the quicksands of the anti-vaccine movement in the past oh, few years? Oh, I was. Jesus, that just came out of nowhere. Yeah, I have to imagine that for an actual physician, it must be much more surprising yeah. to see. You know, perhaps I had a more jaundiced view because <laughs> of the world that I cover and not not being a doctor, you know. Um, so, we, I mean, obviously we started seeing this really early on. And I would say the first place I started seeing it was with nurses. I started seeing a bunch of, of nurses specifically saying that they didn't trust vaccines and then eventually also finding my way to seeing doctors saying it. Um, and without being cynical, I would say that some of these folks were not really big players or really famous names before they started promoting kind of contrarian views about Mm -hmm. vaccines. Um, 
And in promoting a so-called heterodox view and, you know, coming out against uh, basic and, you know, widely supported medical intervention by vaccines, they just, they find a different audience, you know, who are uh, really grateful to them for, you know, saying, saying something different and um, feel very heard and are prepared to spend a lot of money to, you know, sit down with them in person, to hear them speak, to buy their books. Um, so for some folks, it can it can lead to a different kind of celebrity. I don't know if that's why they do it, but it is it is certainly true that it happens. We uh, we mentioned Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, or RFK Jr. So he's an environmentalist and lawyer with a long history of crusading against industry polluters. Uh, a psychologist named Sarah Bridges convinced him in 2005 that her son's mm. autism had been caused by the mercury in vaccines. And so RFK Jr. has since become a, a leader in the anti-vaccine movement. He's now, of course, running for president yeah. as a Democrat. Mm. Do you think uh, he's serious about wanting the job or is it more of you know, a Trump situation where he's looking for attention to himself and his cause? And in the wake of his organization, Children's Health Defense, getting kicked off of Instagram and Facebook, a major political run with the accompanying media coverage is the best way to regain the spotlight. Option B. Right, right. So this goes to the question of sincerity, right, which is always the thing that comes up whenever you talk about these folks is do they mean it or are they doing it for attention and for money? And of course, those two things are not mutually exclusive, right? Right. Because um, the, 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 yeah. the, the third option is that they're bull****. So they don't care about the truth value of what they're saying. Yeah, I so what I always say and what I will say here is that I have no idea. I'm not in somebody's heart. I'm not their spiritual advisor. I'm not omniscient. I have no idea. Uh, what then I do why know are is, you here? We <laughs> demand omniscience from all our guests. And think, and think of how of much money you could make if you were RFK Jr.'s spiritual advisor right now. Oh God, I know. Can you imagine? Um, but, you know, that is a that is a big job and I don't think I'm up to it, certainly. Um <laughs> I would say that we hmm, we asked Mr. Kennedy's campaign a while ago if he's planning to run as a third party candidate in the event that he does not become the Democratic nominee, right? Um, because certainly some of what he's doing and some of the kind of alliances that he's building seem like he's trying to also pull votes from the right in addition to kind of more mainstream Democratic voters. Uh, and his campaign just said, you know, we think that he's going to win the nomination. We're not focused on what happens after that. So they're not answering that question. Hmm. So um, I do think that we could learn a lot from whether he tries to kind of mount a third party run in the event that he's not the nominee. But sort of regardless of what happens, uh, it is certainly true that he's getting a ton of attention right now, like way more attention from way more mainstream sources than he ever had before. You know, at um, an event that I wrote about, he talked about how, you know, he couldn't get on... He couldn't get in the press for 18 years, and now he's everywhere, and he has, I think he said he had 800 requests from mainstream press. So that's clearly very, you know, very exciting and very appealing. So regardless of why he's running, there's really no question that it's also getting a lot of attention for him and for children's health defense. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you, you, know, you, you point out that he seems to be reaching uh, across the aisle to, to right-wingers as well. And I see this. Mm. And there's, a, there's a lot of libertarianism in his philosophy, which right now tends to skew right. I heard him say recently uh, that he was more of an old-school Democrat. And I've, I've heard this kind of line before from people who identify as classical liberals. Yeah. And so it, it's, it sounds like this kind of warmed-up, you know, uh, traditional how things used to be kind of denomination, right. uh, which I find interesting. 
Yeah, I've definitely heard a lot of that, um, the sort of idea that, you know, liberals and Democrats nowadays are very censorious and they're too concerned with, you know, respecting people's pronouns and, you know, not concerned enough with whatever it is that they think, you know, classic liberal priorities are. Um, There's just no question that Kennedy has also taken on kind of very right-wing and libertarian talking points, you know, like talking about... uh, trans athletes, you know, and it being unfair to have trans women competing in sports with cis women or stressing how much he, uh, you know, supports Bitcoin, which is, of course, pretty bad for the environment and so surprising for an environmental activist. You know, these kind of very, very, very clear talking points that are not really in line with um, the values you would expect a Democratic candidate to hold. I think it's worth reminding people, too, that the traditional Democratic Party included people like George Wallace not that long ago. So I'm not sure yeah. that hearkening back to their past is something the Democratic <laughs> Party is overly eager to uh, to embrace. A fair point. Yeah. And, uh, and there is some friction between right-wingers and RFK Jr. because Kennedy believes that climate change is real. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> how do you think that the climate deniers who are also anti-vaxxers are going to deal with this? Yeah, I mean, this came up recently in this sort of health policy roundtable that Kennedy did with a group of, you know, purported experts that included, you know, Mickey Willis, who's the filmmaker behind Plandemic, Joseph Merkola, who's the biggest sort of natural health figure that I can think of, and Sherry Tenpenny, who's a big figure in the anti-vaccine world. And I think it was Mickey Willis who asked Mr. Kennedy, you know, whether he agreed that the climate change narrative had been exaggerated. That was Willis's words, which of course is, you know, actually a very good question to ask Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Mm -hmm. He's an environmental activist who's also currying favor among, you know, these pretty fringe people. And so Kennedy said, he tried to kind of split the split the difference. He said that he believes climate change is real, but that he does not believe carbon or carbon emissions are to blame. And then he also followed that up by saying, you know, um, climate science isn't really my strong suit. You know, I know a lot more about vaccine science. I'm a lot more comfortable with that. It was it was a really interesting exchange. Yeah, see, I, I've always blamed, I, I, I I've would always, disagree oh, with his assessment, yeah. but go ahead, Chris. <laughs> I, no, I was going to say is like, see, I don't. I'm not a carbon denier. I'm more of an argon denier. That's the <laughs> element in the periodic table that I have the most issue with. But right, I'll, sure, why not? So, so RFK Jr. Uh, is essentially denying anthropogenic climate change. Is, is your reading of, of his answer? Yeah, it was a it was a confusing answer to me, primarily because. I was actually surprised that he said that climate science was not his strong suit, Mm -hmm. given that he was an environmental lawyer for so many years and he litigated so many cases having to do with, you know, clean air and clean water. It's very surprising to me to hear him saying that it was not a subject that he understood strongly. Uh, And at the same time, he said that, you know, he's very comfortable with vaccine science because he's litigated so many vaccine lawsuits, which hmm. again is not as I understand it traditionally how people learn about vaccine science, but you <laughs> know, I no. guess. Usually no. Right. I, I don't know. Again, I'm not a doctor. Like I, I could have a, a different understanding of what medical school looks like. Uh, it, it's sort of interesting because again, it gets back to our earlier point is like, is this like a genuine like is is this self-serving or is this just he framed himself as I'm a champion of the little guy and mm. now the little guy doesn't want to get vaccinated, so I'm a champion of this. And is it like is is I, I, it's very hard to know? Is it just about 
fighting the good fight as you see it and it takes you wherever it takes you and you don't have to worry about things you said six months ago or or is this just completely self-serving i and again I, i'm sort of like you i don't know what the answer is because it just doesn't it doesn't make sense internally but i've come to realize that for a lot of people internal logic isn't necessarily a high priority you know what you said six months ago doesn't apply today like that was six months ago why are you still asking me about stuff i said before now i'm saying something different yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that he has been promoting anti-vaccine beliefs since 2005, so 18 years. But the mechanisms for how vaccines are supposed to cause harm ha- has changed slightly over the years. There's been kind of different uh, points that are stressed up or down. So, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting sort of dynamic to follow. I've been I've been really kind of well surprised and and not surprised and and I would hope that by now there'd be a very long German word to explain to explain this uh, dual state of being simultaneously surprised and not surprised. Sturgenfreuden. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, something yeah, like right. that. Uh, at the fact that you know we're we're hearing from these anti-vaxxers like Joe Mercola writes about this. Well, his ghostwriters write about this for his newsletter uh, mm-hmm. that supposedly you know many of the of the messenger RNA vaccines turn out to be placebos. And 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 this is used in, in, in two conflicting ways. I mean, on the one hand, they're saying, oh, see, you weren't even getting the real thing, which is why it was making you sick. And then the other way is, well, no, actually, the, the real vaccine was designed to make you sick, but there were mishaps in the production process. So some people are now okay because they got a placebo. Like, it's, it's, what, it's however they, 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 it fits the narrative on a particular day. Yeah, I was looking at that that same newsletter. I also subscribe to his newsletter, and I really respect how much these guys write. You know, oh, yeah. I would say that. Oh my god, like him, Robert Malone, who purports to be the inventor of mRNA technology. Like these guys, just they blog so much. Yeah. You know, and well, when you don't have a day someone, job, it's easier yeah. to write blogs. Well, they, they, I mean, they clearly have ghostwriters. Like, there's no yeah. way that Joe Mercola sits at his computer all day long and cranks out, you know, 12 pieces a day. Uh. Right. But I, I guess I guess the overall point of this was to try to promote the idea that mRNA vaccines are not vaccines, that they're gene therapy, mm-hmm. that they're experimental gene therapy. I mean, like, I understood the sort of overall points that he was promoting because they're very similar to what he usually says. But, yeah, they, it, didn't, it didn't quite uh, line up this time. That like the the word the way that he was using the word placebo didn't seem to be in line with the mainstream understanding of what that word means. But it gels with what we know of conspiracy theorists, which is that as long as they deny the mainstream narrative, it's okay. They may they will not agree on what the actual truth is. You know, it's just like with flat earthers. Uh, there are mm. there are conventions of flat earthers where they each have their own little model of what they think the Earth really looks like. And, right. and they don't agree with each other, but they all agree that it is not a sphere. And that's the mm. important commonality that they have. There's also a pretty famous study that I've referred to a lot called Dead and Alive, Belief in Contradictory yes. Conspiracy Theories, um, which is essentially about, yeah, the fact that people can hold multiple beliefs comfortably at the same time, because as you say, they're all about kind of opposing the main narrative. So in that case, there were conspiracy theories about Princess Diana's death, whether she's still alive, whether she was killed by MI6, whether she was, you know, uh, killed by, um, you know, some other entity, I guess, like the CIA. I forget what the exact, you know, theories were there, but they found that people could pretty comfortably hold multiples. And this is something I see all the time when I go to anti-vaccine or conspiracy conferences. It's enough to just say, that the mainstream narrative is not true or that it's questionable rather than, you know, make a definitive statement about what you actually think is true. 
for anybody interested in Princess Diana, Mitchell and Webb have a great skit about <laughs> the, the Princess Diana <laughs> conspiracy true. theories. It is hilarious, and it also does an excellent job at, at demonstrating to you why all the conspiracy theories don't actually make sense. But in, it's it's a great skit for anybody who wants to search for it on uh, on YouTube. Fun. So. Um, this is this is this is in the news now. There's been a lot of discussion about this, uh, and so I'm going to put the put the question up to you. How does one responsibly interview an anti-vaccine influencer? Yeah, um, this is a question that journalists talk about a lot. I was actually just on on the media talking to Brandy Zadrozny, who's an NBC news journalist who also covers the anti-vaccine movement a lot, and we were kind of discussing it. Um, I tend to think that I have an easier job than, for instance, TV journalists. I write, I only write, I do not do video. And um, I think it's much harder to do interviews where you're sort of pushing back in real time, you're contextualizing what people are saying as they're talking, you know, like I think in many ways video is sort of the friend to someone who's maybe trying to promote um, contested beliefs, let's say. So I always say that there's a few things that you want to do. First of all, you think about why you're interviewing this person at all, the question that you're trying to answer, the sort of, you know, what what you're going into the discussion hoping to learn from interviewing them. And the second thing is being prepared to push back in real time. So in the case of, let's say, Mr. Kennedy, he has very specific talking points about things like ethyl versus methyl mercury that he trots out over and over and over. And you should be prepared to to respond to those. You really should. Um, and in some cases, that can feel more adversarial for some journalists, maybe than they're comfortable with. But that's that's something you have to do. Um, and you know, the third, of course, is to be prepared at this point for whoever you're interviewing to make their own version of the interview, to make their own content out of it. To, for instance, if you're asking someone for comment via email, to you know, tweet it out or share it on Telegram with all their followers and accuse you of terrible bias and dark deeds and dastardly whatever. Um, it just It's very common now, and it's not something we can do anything about. It's something they have a right to do, but it's just, you know, it's something to be prepared for when you're going into these kinds of scenarios to know that you are going to be, uh, yeah, accused of being a CIA agent usually. Uh, that's one that's happened to me a lot or funded by Big Pharma and to just understand that it's going to get very personal very quickly when you try to fact check these folks. Another thing that happens is that if you take somebody that has anti-vaccine views and you interview them for something else, mm. they can twist the interview. This happened with um, uh, in the UK, uh, Asim Hotra. They had him on to talk mm. about statins because he's been a long cholesterol denier, which should have been a red flag for many of us, but whatever. <laughs> uh, and then COVID happened and he became you know, an anti-vaxxer, a COVID denier. And so they brought him wow. on to talk about the UK guidelines regarding cholesterol and about halfway through the interview said, and by the way, the yeah. big issue right. is that the mRNA vaccines are causing all these deaths in young people and the vaccines are dangerous and production needs to be stopped. And he just hijacked the interview to spew right. his, his thing. And there's very little you can do about that on live TV, you know, except mm. cut him off when he takes a breath. And that's really the only thing that you have at your disposal. Yeah, I mean, this happened recently with ABC News back in May. You know, they were one of the first places to interview Robert F. Kennedy Jr. after he announced his candidacy. And he, of course, started making false claims about vaccines during the interview that's what he does that's his whole thing um and so abc chose to just cut that portion of the interview entirely and then say you know he made false claims so we chose to cut it which i wrote about this then allowed kennedy to say i'm being censored by the mainstream media they won't even let me talk because my views are too powerful they're too dangerous so there's all these 
traps that you can fall into. Cholesterol denier, huh? Yeah. 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 Great. <laughs> no, no, that's a thing. If you listen, I no <laughs> you should you should come into my world. There are people who oh, deny wonderful. that cholesterol is a thing of heart disease. There was a great quote in the uh, I forget where, but it was like these are the group of people that could travel to Italy and come back with a recipe to put pineapple on pizza. There was something like that. Like it was like it was <laughs> it's, it's it's incredible the diet books these wow. people write and it's 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 really it's it's yeah, cholesterol wow. deniers. That's a thing I have to deal with. That's fascinating. I Love that. I love to hear about it. I love to hear about a new one. That's great. Wow. Well, if you're looking to interview somebody uh, who's cogent about this, <laughs> there uh, you go. You have, you have Chris's email. I have, a one, I have yeah. a one hour PowerPoint presentation on the history of the <laughs> cholesterol controversy. And it is fascinating to see where a lot of these things come from. It's really I, historically fascinating. I'm probably going to email you about this all right. in all seriousness. That sounds great. Love, cool. love to love to hear about it. It does come with uh, an opposition to statins, right, Chris? Yeah, no, and that's what it is. It's become, yeah. it, it's a fascinating thing. We, we're not going to talk about cholesterol denialism now, but it's a fascinating <laughs> thing that it's a, it, it had its core in, you know, a little bit of ambiguity of the science, and then it sort of mm. crystallized in this opposition to statins. And again, it's, it, and then it took on a lot of the similar themes to the anti-vaccine movement. Uh, people are suppressing the data. The people who are in favor of this are being paid off by big pharma. Your corporate well, shills were the truthers. Sure. You're trying to censor us. That was a big thing in the BMJ Lancet debate. And it, and then, and, and one of the more prominent anti-cholesterol people, lo and behold, COVID hits, you know, reveals himself as a COVID denier and anti-vaxxer. And you're like, oh, now you start oh. to see where a lot of the similar threads seem to come from. I mean, yeah, and when we talk about this, you know, it also reminds me of, of course, the kind of vitamin K truthers who claim Mm -hmm. that, you know, babies don't need vitamin K shots at birth or fluoride obviously is the most classic example of another kind of purported, you know, medical conspiracy. I mean, yeah, these are these are uh, very different ideas on the surface, but they come from kind of the same place and the same knowledge about about or the same uh, assumptions about how things work. Recently, RFK Jr. was famously a guest on the Joe Rogan Experience. Uh, (laughs) Spotify, which has a deal with Rogan, seems to not even pretend to care about the anti-vaccine misinformation that he's platforming. But this particular appearance uh, of RFK Jr. has led to the very public and and even in-person harassment of Dr. Peter Hotez, uh, with anti-vaxxers deciding that he needed to debate RFK Jr. on the topic of vaccines on Rogan's show, because that is how science is decided upon it's through public debating yeah i wanted to ask you the the following question because i i think the answer is no but maybe there are exceptions have you seen instances where publicly debating an anti-vaxxer has turned out to have been a a, a net good uh no i i just can't think of a time when that has been a good idea i think the reasons why dr hotez didn't do it are pretty obvious you know it tends to lend some legitimacy to the idea it turns the whole thing into a spectacle it's as you say not how science works but i'm i'm curious i mean do either of you think that there's a scenario where that can work because i'm open to being wrong i i will give you one example of something that Uh happened to me during covid i was on a panel here where they were talking about i forget what but it was like a general thing about covid and one of the people Mm. on the panel was this politician here in canada who was kicked out of the conservative party for objecting to uh, this was ontario the provincial one so kicked out of the party Uh and sort of planted his flag as you know anti-vaccine anti-covid and so i i I knew he was coming and i knew the things he was going to say because he's a politician and he has his talking points and so when we were on the panel 
I think I did a pretty good job of shutting him down because he kept saying stuff that was relevant to the U.S. as opposed to Canada and sort of made the sure. point. Like, I think it's important for our politicians <laughs> to remember what country we live in because that applies oh in the God. U.S., not here. Uh, <laughs> and so one of the comments under the video was, you know, you probably should have found a better anti-vaccine doctor to debate Dr. Labos. It would have given him more of a challenge. So I, I feel like sure. in a situation like that, you can... You you can probably do some good in countering what's going to come for the people who are going to watch this. But on a platform like Joe Rogan's, where the people have so thoroughly drunk the Kool-Aid, I'm not sure it will help. But on mainstream news, I think there is a benefit because you need to be there to counter the anti-vaccine, uh, the anti-vaccine messaging. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one thing that happened that I think a lot of journalists keep in mind is this sort of false balance of climate change denial, which became a big issue Mm -hmm. in the kind of late 90s and early 2000s, where there was this desire to, you know, share both sides of the story. And so um, mainstream news organizations started interviewing this very small number of scientists who didn't believe that climate change was real. And in some cases, it turned out that they were backed by... (laughs) Uh, you know, industry groups, um, in some cases from places like the oil and gas industry. So that wasn't great. And it created this sense of this lack of understanding among the public about what the sort of mainstream scientific consensus is. That also happened, I would say, with vaccines, you know, and the controversy in the 80s over the Tdap vaccine. There was, um, you know, some pretty infamous kind of TV documentaries sort of presenting this false balance and, uh, Yeah, I think that you don't, certainly you don't want to infantilize your audience, right? And if there is a legitimate debate, you want them to understand what it is. But at times, the desire for balance has led to such a, um, such a skewing of, you know, what, what is actually believed to be true by, you know, a majority of people who are, who are uh, in a position to know. Yeah, per, I mean, personally, I'm I'm not a fan of the debate format. Um, I I do understand that. Yeah, there are genuine debates in science. They happen in academic circles and at conferences and in journals. Mm. Um, the the problem with debating fringe voices is that they always have the advantage because it is an exercise in rhetorics. It's an exercise in being emotional, in making broad statements, and the science is never broad and emotional. It is always nuanced. And it's very easy to gish gallop your way from one talking point to the next and citing studies that your audience has never, uh, never read uh, and making these broad points about them that, you know, misconstrue them or decontextualize them. And then, you know, the person who is trying to defend the science is stuck with the worst, uh, the worst of it by, by attempting to address all of these points and being thorough. And it is almost impossible in a debate format. You have to go into it understanding that it's a debate, understanding that it's no different than a leader's debate in a political campaign. You're not going in there to teach people. You're going in there to essentially land a knockout blow. And you have to realize that the things that are going to work is rhetoric, is examples, is homespun folksy like wisdom, um, not quoting the research. And you have to be ready for what the other side is going to throw at you. So when they say, you know, the vaccines, uh, you know, there's still emergency use authorization. They're like, Forgive me, sir, but we live in Canada. That's that that's not a thing that exists here in the same way that the Fifth Amendment and the First Amendment don't apply in Canada. So you have to be ready for your opponent and be ready to hit them with that left jab that's going to destabilize them and make them look essentially silly in front of the audience. And so you have to go into it with that mindset, which is not the mindset a lot of people have. They want to go in there and have this serious academic debate. And if you go in with that mindset, you are going to get trampled over. 
And I'm not saying you should do that, but I'm saying that if you are going to do that, you have to do that with that framework in your head. And that is a very time-consuming thing because you have to prep for a debate. When politicians prep for leaders' debates, they spend days with a team prepping. Uh, yeah. So, in, again, it's, it's, it, the problem is, is that for most people, they don't realize what they're doing. They're, they're, bringing, they're bringing a knife to a gunfight, essentially. When, mm-hmm. when, uh, when Stefan Guionet, who's a former guest of our show, was on the Joe Rogan Experience and he was debating somebody, I forget the, what the exact topic was, he had prepared a list of references that had been posted publicly on, on, on one of his platforms before uh, the Joe Rogan Experience <laughs> aired. And he was, re- he was literally in real time <laughs> referencing, you know, this is reference three, this is reference 36. Uh, I mean, can you imagine the amount of work that goes into prepping for something like this? Yeah, that sounds like that sounds like kind of the the level of prep that you would need, right? I mean, yeah. this discussion arose years ago in the U.S. with the show Crossfire, mm-hmm. where Tucker Carlson was one of the hosts, um, right? He was one of the hosts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was that a dream? Where no, Tucker no, he Carlson was. He was, was wearing, a... wearing his bow tie, and John Stewart right. came along, and he he killed the show. Yeah, he was in his bow tie era, as they would say. But it was one of those things where it really highlighted the strengths and weaknesses of just debate in general. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that Tucker Carlson was very good at winning debates because he yelled louder. He talked faster. He was really good at sort of denigrating people. Like he had, he had a very specific set of skills, but they weren't necessarily good for getting to maybe the truth of what was being discussed. It's a lot more harmless in politics. Right. But yeah, um, I, I was thinking about it a lot lately. And, and it is, it is. I guess the, the the debate format lends itself better to debating opinions or values, sure. less less so facts. And when you're debating science, that's that's the problem is that you're debating facts. I, w- I will share a story with you. I was contacted by this journalism student a while back. She went. She was interviewing me for a school project, so we did the interview. And then she said, "I would like to set up this like public debate on vaccines and whatever. Like, what do you oh think of God. this?" And we had a series of conversations. And I said, "Look, we can do it." But here's the problem. A debate presumes that people agree on a set of facts and then debate interpretation, opinion, strategy, and whatnot. The problem you're going to have is people are going to come in and say, all these young athletes are dying because of the vaccine. All these soccer players have died. And no, they haven't. And so, and I told her, well, the only way to do this is if you want somebody to bring the information, then we can have an offline sharing of information back and forth, settle the data, and then the debate is essentially going to be the final debriefing. Like that kind of format could work if we worked out the details. And she said, okay, let me think about it. And she eventually acknowledged like, no, there's no way to do it because the people who are going to come and debate you, it's not a debate. They just fundamentally don't believe anything you say. And that's, there's no there's no going to the truth there because somebody has an entrenched position and they just want to yell at you and, you know, sometimes shout hurtful and, you know, de- demeaning things to you, which is what increasingly has happened, especially online. Right. You can't sort of stipulate to a shared set of facts and go from there the way you could in, you know, say a court case, yeah. you know, or you do stipulations. Yeah, that's an interesting, an interesting problem. I don't know what journalism school would ever sanction a project like that i'm real curious about where she got that idea (laughs) (laughs) we'll tell you once we're done recording (laughs) yeah Mm -hmm. no listen i think it was an interesting idea Mm -hmm. Uh, you know and she's a student she's like oh let me think about this and then in the end she's like no i see why this is not going to work and that's (laughs) fair and you know it would have been interesting to see could a model for 
what essentially would have become a debunking exercise. That's how I was sort of seeing it. But, right. you know, it's like, yeah, I don't know how it would have worked, practically speaking. And the fact that it didn't work probably shows you that it probably can't. That's really interesting. Huh. Wow. A, r- a real learning moment for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I recently watched a week's worth of RFK Jr.'s, you know, quote-unquote television channel, as I was saying, uh, because Children's Health Defense makes shows under the the CHD TV umbrella and I feel like you need a hobby Jonathan I feel like you need other things in your life (laughs) it's 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 my job and what struck me uh and and this is to echo what you uh what you were mentioning earlier Anna is that you can't just say that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and his anti-vaxxers are simply against vaccines they believe all sorts of grand conspiracy theories and what they offer as solutions often boils down to prayers, like to literal religious prayers. And this, as you mentioned, has been called conspirituality. We've had mm. we've had Matthew Remsky from Conspirituality on the podcast a few years ago. I wanted to ask you, have you seen any anti-vax influencer recently, not from 20 years ago, but in the current era, mm. who does not have a conspiritualist worldview, who strictly has issues with the safety of vaccines, but appears otherwise to be sane and, and rational in, in other aspects of their public life? Huh, that's an interesting question. Um, well, I can't speak to anybody's sanity, obviously. You know, I'm sure that everybody considers themselves to be eminently sane, as do I, and I wouldn't take that away from anybody. I guess what I would say is that I've written about this quite a bit, the amount of overlap between different kind of conspiracist worldviews is very high. At this point, it's very rare to have like one little corner that you're in, for instance, vaccine safety, and it doesn't go anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So we see that with people like Robert F. Kennedy Jr. We see that. Yeah. um, Huh. That's a really interesting question. I guess another way of thinking about it is that like, is there anybody who has just one thing that they focus on and they don't go outside of that? It's much easier for me to think of examples of the other way around. For instance, Larry Cook who obviously is this big anti-vaccine activist and has been for years, during COVID became uh, extremely enamored of QAnon Mm -hmm. and was promoting sort of QAnon ideas um, on places like Telegram. And so that I've seen much more frequently than I've seen people kind of staying in their lanes and sticking to one topic. I'm sure uh, maybe once we finish recording, I'll think of someone who is a single issue guy, but it's, it's, uh, it's, quite rare well at the, this point. the the two names that popped into my head as i was formulating the question is uh their two buddies there's dr vinay prasad and and z dog yeah. md who, oh, yeah. who as far as i know uh don't have any kind of outward spiritual uh practice that they preach on their podcasts uh they they, ha- they don't seem to have embraced this kind of conspiritualist mindset um, but uh, Chris, Chris, do you do you know of any uh, other anti-vaxxers who don't seem to have gone like like Christian Northrup talking about the age of Aquarius and playing mm. the harp and talking about angels and prophecies? I mean, you do see it with the medical people that have become anti-vaccine, right. anti-COVID, but I don't know if that's because they don't think that way or because they don't express that belief. Right. Um, I think a lot of medical people stick to the medical thing because that's what they know and that's what, when they have an online presence, that's what their followers are looking for. Their followers would be turned off if they started talking about politics. And they might Mm. be afraid that they're going to alienate some segment of their population if they start saying certain things. So Mm -hmm. I think what happens a lot of times is that we simply don't 
unmask those pre-existing beliefs. And again, just to harken back to the cholesterol deniers, you know, again, maybe in retrospect, not that surprising that people who denied the evidence about cholesterol linked to heart disease would then turn around and deny the evidence that COVID-19 is caused by a virus and the vaccines prevent infections and prevent severe disease. So it's like it's I think a lot of these times the 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 substrate is there and it just takes a trigger to unmask it and we just don't see it. That's why it's not made manifest publicly. Anna, have you been following uh, Brett Weinstein and his wife? Yeah, I I have written about them a bit. Yes. Are they uh, because I mean, I, I don't watch their NPR sounding uh, podcast, the Dark Horse podcast, but I, I do see clips from it once in a while. And they seem to be kind of very granola, bordering on new age. But have you seen them become like full on conspiritualists or are they still just denying the science? Huh. Um, well, I am mostly familiar with Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying for their ivermectin mm-hmm. advocacy, I would say. That's yeah. kind of the main thing that they started promoting after leaving um, Evergreen University, where they used to work. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously, when you start promoting kind of medical alternative facts, let's say, you don't tend to stick with just one thing. But I would definitely say that I don't think that they're, for instance, super into new age stuff or angels or things of that nature. And I do I do know what you're talking about, because whenever I go to a conspiracy conference, I see a lot of new age stuff and, you know, angels and other realms and vice versa. You know, at new age conferences, I see a lot of anti-vaccine stuff. So those two things bleed over. I would not say that I've seen that a ton with Weinstein and Hying, I mean, they tend to, um, Ms. Hying specifically talks about herself a lot as a biologist, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but one thing that has happened is that both of them have been talking much more about um, trans issues and yes. sort of opposition to things like gender confirmation surgeries, hormonal or surgical interventions, um, which I've written about this a bit, that has become a bigger feature in the anti-vaccine and conspiracist world generally, uh, just this sort of opposition to gender confirmation, this sort of conviction that um, transition or trans- transgender people are, you know, in some way unnatural, a danger to the youth. I mean, I'm definitely seeing a lot more of this kind of heavy anti-trans rhetoric, even though I'm sure that they would not describe it that way. Yeah, that's that's good of you to highlight. Um, anti-vaxxers often accuse those of us who are pro-vaccine of being in it for the money, of receiving funds from the pharmaceutical industry. We've discussed this a little bit. Uh, of course, what, what is implied is that they are doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Uh, mm. So I wanted uh, you to tell our, our listeners, how profitable is the anti-vax industry and how is the money made? Right. So um, as we were talking about, I think before we went on, one common feature I see among vaccine uh, vaccine skeptical physicians, let's call them, people who either promote an alternative vaccine schedule or you know don't advocate for vaccination at all, they tend not to take insurance, right? Um, they charge you're going to pay cash if you're going to go see them. Right. Um, that's a medical that's a pretty, freedom. Yeah, right. That's a pretty common thing that I see. Um, During COVID, a lot of these groups like Children's Health Defense um, got PPP loans from the government. They got, you know, pretty, pretty large loans to stay in operation. Um, These folks also speak at a lot of conferences. So people pay to see them. I assume they also get paid by organizers. Uh, They sell books, they sell seminars, they sell sort of like access to them one-on-one for a price. I've seen them sell access to 
you know, telegrams, locked Twitter accounts. Um, so in every way, it is sort of um, creating the sense that you are going to have one-on-one or specialized medical advice, you know, for a price. Uh, or, you know, if it's not medical advice, then it'll be something like legal advice about how to prevent your child from being vaccinated if you're in a custody dispute, you know, with a parent who, you know, the other parent wants the kid to be vaccinated, for instance. That's another thing. So uh, I see a lot of things being sold that are basically, yeah, offering to provide specialized advice or, you know, a small audience for a small, specially selected group of people. So that's uh, that's pretty common. Yeah, I, I wanted to uh, mention that the New York Times recently reported that RFK Jr.'s total income for the year preceding his run for political office was 7.8 million American dollars, mm. uh, of which uh, o- o- a little over half a million uh, was just his earnings with CHD, the Children's Health Defense. Right. Uh, so yeah, it can be quite quite profitable. They also just have donors, you know, they just have people giving to the organization. Um, Often in the case of CHD, I see them soliciting donations for their legal fund because they Mm -hmm. sue the federal government a lot. They, you know, participate in these lawsuits with other organizations accusing, for instance, you know, the Biden administration of censorship. Um, This is very common. So, yeah, you know, asking for money to go into your general fund is, uh, is another thing that we see a lot of. So obviously, you know, they, they have rationalized their opposition to vaccines. But I, I, I suspect that there's also a very strong emotional component underneath all of this. And I wanted to ask you if tomorrow all vaccines were to become oral or nasal, so it's a nasal spray or it's something you take by mouth, mm-hmm. do you think that we would see the same level of opposition to them? Is it the needle? Uh, yes. As, as somebody has as, you know, once uh, put it, the state penetrating your body. Right. Is it the needle that provokes the kind of disgust and reactance that fuels anti-vaccine opposition? Yes, absolutely. Well, 95 percent, 95. There's certainly a core of people that post everything. A lot of it is the needle. And Mm. I'll share you some anecdotes. A lot of it is the needle. If you told people it was a pill, Mm. we would be living in a different reality right now. Interesting. That's so interesting to me. So, I mean, do you have... I mean, have you had patients yourself yeah. who are more yeah. so receptive a, to things there, that are... Uh-huh. Yeah, there's an older uh, man who's almost a family friend, did not want to get vaccinated for most of the pandemic, eventually did, but it took me a good two years of working on him to get it done. And he oh. was like... And now, to understand his context, he doesn't go to a doctor. Like, he has sure. never been to a doctor because he doesn't want to find out that he's sick. He could have sky-high mm. blood pressure and we have no way to know. He just... He doesn't want to go yeah. to a doctor. He doesn't want to be sick. And what he said to me was, when we were talking about this, I like, listen, you have to be careful. You need to wear a mask. Like, forget, you're unvaccinated. You're an older man. This is not going to go mm. well for you. Mm-hmm. And at one point, he's like, you know, can't medical science find something where you would just take a pill and then you wouldn't get sick? I'm like, that's what a vaccine is. And he was like, oh, <laughs> yeah, but no, it's, it's, the, it's the injection. It's the needle that freaks people out. Because, listen, parents will more than happily give their kids Flintstones chewable vitamins. Right, you you take mm-hmm. something, you put it in a vitamin mineral supplement, and you put it, it, it. This this would go so much easier. A lot, maybe not all of it, and maybe a lot more with the older generation, where the younger generation may have you know this is all tied in with the politics and religion and a whole bunch of stuff that's like floating around in the ether out there. But certainly mm. for 
the older generation, and I think for a lot of people, it's the needle that freaks them out. If you made it a pill that they could go to the pharmacy and get and swallow and be done, we wouldn't be talking about this. Point of fact, people are much more willing to accept the oral polio vaccine than the uh, inactivated uh, polio vaccine. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, you have to wonder, though, how much of this is that the anti-vaccine movement has been active for so long and has so successfully seeded these fears that, you know, people just trust something that doesn't look like a vaccine anymore. You know, like it, it, it just maybe it's it's sort of a chicken and an egg argument. But yeah, again, um, vitamin K, apparently, again, from the same article, that ran in the New York Review of Books that I think about all the time about vitamin K deniers, uh, people are much more likely to accept it for their babies in an oral form than in a in in a needle. Because it is so, often yeah. wrongfully uh, portrayed as a vaccine, right? Right. By, by anti-vaxxers, because yeah. there's a needle. It's right. like, it's like it's, the needle is what makes it a vaccine, which is And here's wrong. the other thing. One of the other things that we do with babies, we put an antibiotic ointment on their eyes to prevent eye infections, which has a lot less evidence supportive of it. And it may have actually fallen out of practice, but it was very common when I was in training. Hmm. Nobody has a problem wow. with that because it's a gel that you're putting <laughs> on the eyes to prevent eye infections. People get it, right? They've, they've put creams on their skin and they're like, yeah, I understand what this is. It's, it's practically I, baptism. Yeah, listen, right. I think I, I think a lot of it is the need. And we've seen people, you know, um, you know, pro-science people putting a lot of social media posts about why is this an injection? Why isn't the uh, the flu mist? Oh, the other thing, the, the flu mm-hmm. vaccine, when flu mist was available for kids and when it came off the market in 2018 and then came back, there was a lot of things. It was like, oh, no, we, we need a, a, a nasal spray for kids because kids are afraid of needles. In reality, when you survey kids, it doesn't really make much of a difference to them. But parents cannot tolerate the idea of a needle going into their child. And you tell them it's a nasal spray and they're like, fine even though it's essentially <laughs> the same vaccine with roughly equivalent efficacy. But again, it's, it's the, I think it's the emotional aspect of seeing a needle. Wow. I mean, and also I've written about this a bit, you know, the anti-vaccine movement really weaponizes the sort of language of and fear of regret, you know, yeah. the idea that an injection is something that you can't take back, even though obviously like other kinds of medicine, when you swallow them, you also can't unswallow them. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, maybe because somebody else is injecting you, yeah. You know, maybe that's the thing uh, is like this sense of not having total control over the situation. Like if people were able to self-administer vaccines, they would trust them more. Yeah. Who knows? It's an interesting question. It's not one I've thought about a lot. Uh, and yet people love diamonds and diamonds are also forever. So Indeed they are. <laughs> <laughs> my, my final question to you, Anna, is that uh, chapter six of your book, Republic of Lies, deals mm-hmm. with the anti-vaccine movement and with health misinformation. You spend a, a good deal of it giving voice to the rational reasons why many people doubt that the pharmaceutical industry has our best interests at heart. And, right. and certainly we've seen uh, plenty of examples of drugs causing serious side effects. Of We've seen contaminated vaccines. I'm thinking 100 years ago before regulations were a thing. That was, that was a big, right. uh, big issue. There were immoral experiments like the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. Um, pharmaceutical pharmaceutical companies are not evil, but they exist within a capitalistic framework which provides them with bad incentives. I wanted to ask you, how do you personally wrestle with that, with the wrongdoings of the industry on the one hand and trusting the safety of their vaccines on the other? Yeah, I mean, this is especially true in a U.S. context, right? Because uh, there are a lot of medical conspiracy theories in the United States, and I think that is very closely tied with the fact that we have a very opaque, very expensive 
medical system, you know, people in this country go into debt and ruin their lives because of medical debt. You yeah. know, we have a we have a very low trust in our medical system for a reason here. And so I think that is often closely tied with people's distrust of things that come from seemingly the medical system, like vaccines. Uh, you don't see some of this or the same level of this in, say, the UK, where there's an incredibly high degree of trust in the NHS. Uh, so when people say to me, you know, how can you possibly be on the side of a pharmaceutical company? Like, I'm not. I'm just simply not. You will never catch me. <laughs> defending, I don't know, Pfizer or Johnson and Johnson or whatever, um, writ large. But what I always say is that worldwide scientists and physicians are pretty united on the safety and efficacy of vaccines for a reason. So I don't just rely on, say, like U.S. regulators or U.S. science. I look at other places in the world, too, you know, whether it's something like the European Medicines Agency, the U.N., the World Health Organization, overwhelmingly around the world, every medical body that you can think of, every medical regulator that you can think of have come to basically the same place uh, for a reason, which is why in conspiracy theories about things like vaccines and medical safety, the conspiracy theories have to get bigger and bigger and bigger to fully encompass that kind of logical fallacy. So it's not enough to just say the U.S. pharmaceutical system is not trustworthy, which like, of course, lots of people would agree to that. Uh, you also have to say the World Health Organization also can't be trusted. You know, the European Union and their medical regulators can't be trusted. You know, you have to make it bigger and bigger until it becomes a global conspiracy theory, because otherwise the logic doesn't hold. And sooner or later, you would have to find someone that you trust. So I always tend to point out that it just um, it just has to get bigger and more outlandish to kind of hold with the logic that they use. Uh, and on that note, I will ask you, uh, if people want to find you and your work online, where would they go? Do you have an Instagram where you reveal your true reptilian nature? Uh, <laughs> where, where do people go? Right. Um, so for now, I'm still using Twitter. I will say that I'm using it less, but I'm still on Twitter. Um, at the moment, I still work at Vice, so you can... Uh, find my author page on vice.com. And if you're on Blue Sky, I'm starting to use Blue Sky a bit more because I spend less time getting yelled at for being a lizard person and also <laughs> being Jewish. Sometimes one suspects that the Jew thing is what's actually bothering them. Mm. Hard to say. <laughs> so yeah, I'm on all those places. And if you want to email me, my email is anna.merlin at vice.com. And I love to get tips about anything that your listeners are hearing about that I should know about. I am also on Blue Sky. And so I will, I will find you there. Unfortunately, Chris has not yet been invited into the, oh my su God. the super secret party. <laughs> I don't I don't I, I have I have an incomplete understanding of what this social media platform is trying to do because like how do you not how do you how do you grow if people can join? I don't really understand it. And if everybody joins it's a won't very it then good just question. become like Twitter again? Like I don't really understand. Yes, it absolutely will. It is not a it is not a solvable problem. It yeah. definitely will. So yeah, that, that'll happen. <laughs> well, uh, Anna Merlin, uh, thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. Thank you so much for having me. What an interesting discussion. And that's the end of our show this month. Our theme music is Fall of the Ocean Queen by Joseph Hackle. Our illustrator is Luke Ouellette. If you want to support the show, find us on Patreon. All of our patrons get a bonus segment each month called Digressions. We are on Facebook and Instagram, and you can find Chris and me on Twitter as well. 
Our website is bodyofevidence.ca. The Body of Evidence is not affiliated with the McGill Office for Science and Society and is a production of 1254-0851 Canada, Inc. And when trying to decide if a study is good or not, remember the Body of Evidence creed. A study in mice is not a study in people. Coincidences are easy. Proving causation is hard. Scientific studies are like movies. Some are just bad. We can't stop at a single study. We have to look at the body of evidence. evidence.